Welcome back to the Crash Course Podcast. My name is Craig Crash Collins, joined as always by Brandon Scott, otherwise known as B. Scott. We've got um, we've got a fun podcast for you this week. We're going to kind of be uh, all over the place. We've got a few uh, topics that, you know, B. Scott and I were talking about aren't, you know, podcasts on their own, but are some little tidbits we want to hit. What's it called? What's the food dish that, like, you basically take whatever you can find in the fridge, just mash it all together? What is what is that called? Do you know? I don't know. I call it a buffet. I yeah, mean, well, I mean, there you go. It's a, Yeah, I mean, that's, that's probably the best. It's a smorgasbord of topics yeah. for you tonight. Uh, we're going to talk some Pacers. Um, they hire their new head coach, Nate Bjorkgren, um, uh, over this past week since we last talked to you guys. Um, we ca- talk about the opening week for the Big Ten, Purdue and IU scoring big wins. Um, and then we're also going to wrap up the IndyCar season. So B's got a lot to talk about in the world of sports. Yeah, I mean, it's great. We went from having no sports to having a lot to talk about. So Let's jump. Let's jump right in with the the Indiana Pacers' new head coaching hire. I, I know I'm super excited about this one. Yeah, let's go ahead and get right into it here. Um, so uh, a few days ago, Pacers uh, hired their new head coach Nate Bjorgren. Uh, he was the Toronto Raptors' assistant coach uh, since 2018. He did win the 2019 NBA Finals. Uh, that, of course, was the team that did have Kawhi Leonard. Um, and then the Raptors this past season went 53 and 19. Um, and he was an assistant for, with the Suns from 2015 to 2017, and he ha- was a longtime G League head coach. He's 126 and 74 uh, in the G League. He did win the 2011 title uh, with Nick Nurse and the Iowa Energy. So, you know, I- I'm looking at this hiring, and I'm skeptically optimistic. Um, he did win the NBA Finals, but it was with Kawhi. Um, he was with the Suns, but that was during a rebuild. So it's not even, I mean, some of the players that are currently on the Suns that are starting to get better were under his, you know, guidance out there, um, you know, in Phoenix. But, um, you know, he was there during some of the more dismal days of the Phoenix Suns. And, you know, he, you know, I feel like the Pacers could have taken more of a chance and gone with Billups, uh, could have gone with a, you know, more of a more, you know, taken more of a chance and gone with Becky Hammonds. Uh, but instead, Bjorkgren is more of kind of, you know, par for the course of the Pacers. It's a safe risk um, because, you know, I think Chauncey Billups would have been that risk because he's never been a head coach. And, you, and, and players turned head coaches are kind of a toss up. I mean, if you told me in 2002, you know, whatever, you know, 10 years ago, which I know not 2002 isn't 10 years ago. But if you told me, you know, 10, 20 years ago that Jason Kidd, you know, was going to be head coach, you know, in the NBA, I would have told you he was going to be a great coach because, you know, he was – you know, he was basically made the Nets relevant for the longest time. Um, and he kind of fizzled out. I mean, you see uh, coaches or players turn coaches, you know, and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. It's kind of the same thing that you see in other sports as well. Um, but yeah, I'm just, I'm cautiously optimistic uh, because we don't have the luxury. It's just like kind of in baseball where, you know, a new manager gets hired, you know, that kind of thing where, you know, it's one thing if like, it's the former catcher, you know, this guy, you have, you feel it in your gut, this guy's going to be the head coach or it's not like, or he's going to be the manager. It's not like in the NFL where you're like, okay, that guy was a great offensive coordinator. I'm really excited to see what he does as head coach. It's kind of like in baseball when they hire like the bench coach uh, to be, you know, the manager, like maybe it'll work, maybe it won't you hire an assistant coach and you kind of wonder, okay, how much of a role did he play uh, in their success? How much of it can be, you know, attributed more to Nick Nurse than it can be to him. So there's a lot of positives you can take. Um, you know, it's, it's a very, 
it's when I saw the notification, I was like, I've never heard of this guy, but this is a very Pacers hire. This felt very Pacers like to me and not necessarily with a bad connotation, but just from the standpoint of, you know, it's not the splashy guy that we kind of were hoping to get. It's more along the lines of, you know, of just kind of, you know, the kind of a safe bet to me. Look, you're right. This is a safe risk. But that's exactly what the Pacers needed at this point in time. The Pacers have a playoff caliber team. They need a guy that can help take them to the next level that's innovative. He is looking to run a little bit more of an innovative offense, not so defensive-oriented like Nate McMillan was. This guy, Nate Bjorkgren, if I'm saying that right, I don't know. Um, he is a coach that has the respect of a lot of players. This is a coach that has a reputation for not just X's and O's through his time with, especially with the Raptors, but he has a reputation of developing players. I mean, when he was the G League head coach uh, with the Iowa Energy, which is the G League affiliate of the Toronto Raptors, he was coaching up players like Fred Van Vliet and got them to a level that would help then Toronto go on to win that championship. Remember, it wasn't just Kawhi that won that championship. There was a lot of players. Obviously, we saw that this past year with Toronto still being a very good team, minus Kawhi. So he is very well known for player development, and anybody you talk to it just loves this guy. Another thing, he also has uh, some coaching experience alongside with TJ Warren when they were both with the Phoenix Suns. Um, and it's what it's starting to seem like is that the Nick nurse coaching tree is something that people really want to tap into. Yes. I know this wasn't the splashy hire. This wasn't a headline breaker or anything like that, that was going to blow up on bleacher report, anything like that. But I feel like this is the move that is going, that could potentially pay dividends like it did when the Pacers hired Frank Vogel. This this is that kind of move that I, I have that feel that this is could eventually end up being like that. And if that's the case, I will take that all day, every day for the Indiana Pacers to have another coach like Frank Vogel. He is that type of coach. Vogel is that same type of coach. He, you know, he was a little bit innovative, you know, and he was a very good player developer. And that is what really helped him excel as a coach. And I feel like this is going to be the same thing with Nate Bjorkren. And I'm really, really excited about this hire. I know it's not splashy. I know it's not the big name, but the Pacers aren't about that. They just haven't been. And I feel like this is a move that's really going to help put the Pacers, take, help them take that next step into title contention. And it'll be interesting to see now what moves they can make, you know, in the off season to help him build that roster to, to play out his style of, play for as a coach and I mean you know a lot of the stuff that I read up on him you know said that Bjorkman is very like innovative and stuff like that I just and, and, I, and like I said cautiously optimistic because he very well could you know do a very good job I mean heck you know when you know we, you know kind of in a way it's sort of like the head coaching search for the Colts when they were going to get Josh McDaniels and you're like okay that's the guy we want to have and then and we ended up with Frank Reich and then at the time we're like well I mean hopefully it's good and it turned out to be great um, in my opinion. So, I mean, maybe it works out that way. I just, I don't know. To me, it just feels like you hire a guy like Bjorkgren when you like, 
when you're actually like when you're kind of trying to rebuild, develop a team. I mean, he's obviously a good guy with young talent. And I mean, this is a year that's really kind of pivotal in an offseason that's really pivotal to the Pacers where, you know, are you going to keep Miles Turner? Are you going to keep Victor Oladipo? What are you going to do on that kind of thing? So like, it kind of seems like it's more of a, that's the kind of guy you hire when you're more in a developmental stage, not necessarily a, you know, you want to contend for the Eastern Conference kind of way, if that makes sense. The Pacers are still also kind of in a development sort of way. I mean, look, you still are trying to develop Aaron Holiday. You definitely still need to develop Goga Batadze. I mean, there's two players right there that are potential key rotational pieces moving forward or even starters in in the Aaron Holiday situation that need some more development. And this is the perfect coach for those types of players. I mean, heck, if, if the Pacers end up deciding to hold on to Miles Turner, we've all been talking about when is Miles Turner going to make that turn around the corner? When is he going to finally make that turn? And he's, it's going to click for him and he's going to become that all-star center that a lot of people expected him to be able to become. Maybe now that Nate Bjorkren is the head coach and you know he's so good with player development, maybe now is the time that, Miles Turner takes that next step because of a coach that knows how to get his players to take that next step. And that that's a very crucial thing. And also one of the unspoken things about it, he has a very good, we've talked about this yesterday when we were planning the show. He has a very good relationship with Fred Van Vliet, who is going to be a free agent. Now the Pacers would not be able to afford Fred Van Vliet, but there is potential there that the Pacers could, or the, the Toronto Raptors could, look at a potential sign and trade. And, you know, there, that's some, there's some rumors around that that may have some leg to it. Um, but, you know, that's just one of those things that if, if you had to make a, a, a straight up swap of Victor Oladipo for Fred Van Vliet, I think I would, I would kind of go for that. But that's, you know, those are just hearsay rumors. But the fact that he has such good relationships with his players and his players are super excited for him from Toronto – that just speaks that just speaks a lot about this guy's character and the way that he coaches and the respect that he gains from his players. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, I remember yesterday when you were bringing it up that I didn't even think about the fact that he was in Phoenix at the same time as TJ Warren. So, I mean, we saw what Warren did, you know, during those eight games of, you know, of the bubble and then into the playoffs and we saw, you know, what he was able to do there and if they are able to make a move with, I mean, because the Raptors are one of the teams that's been rumored to be in the market for an Oladipo trade if it were to happen. So, I mean, there's some exciting stuff that can happen there. So, I get, uh, it's definitely going to be interesting to see what they do. But he's, you know, he's also a coach that could potentially attract free agents in the future just because of his reputation as a player's coach. True. And I mean, you know, and maybe that's, that's exactly big. that's really big. I mean, Nate McMillan wasn't exactly a player's coach, great guy. You know, but he was he ran things like a drill sergeant, and that doesn't always rub off very well on bigger name players in the free agent market. So maybe this is this helps the Pacers in that that area as well. Yeah. So it will we'll see what happens. It will be interesting to see uh, what goes on there, and we'll get into that a little bit more um, in hot or cold. But uh, well, let's go ahead and talk. We talked a little. We mentioned Victor Oladipo. Let's go ahead and talk about uh, the conference that uh, he played in when he was in college, the Big Ten. But before we get into that, though, sorry about the awful segue. Um, but uh, remember, you can follow us at Crash Course FM on Twitter, Crash Course Podcast on YouTube. Um, we do post the podcast, uh, replay of the podcast every week. We're also going to start uh, posting just segments by themselves. So if you had a favorite. 
favorite segment. You want to go back and look at that. Uh, that'll be kind of fun to look at there as well. Um, so go over there, subscribe. Um, we're all at, we're at 16 subscribers right now. So, Hey, you know what? We're trying to get to 20, 25. So, um, if you want to go check out the content, head over there. Um, you can also, if you're listening to us on the audio side or are on, or, or are on YouTube, uh, we also stream live every Monday on our Facebook page, crash course podcast. And remember you can hear the crash course podcast every week on iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, or, uh, Spotify, Google podcasts, wherever podcasts can be heard, you can hear the Crash Course Podcast. So let's go ahead and talk about the Big Ten opening week. It was it was a fun one, B. Scott. Uh, first of all, you know, we can't talk about the Big Ten without talking about the great win that Purdue had over Iowa. They win 24-20, to come from behind victory. Aiden O'Connell threw for 282 yards and three touchdowns, all of which were to David Bell. Xander Horvath, 21 carries, 129 yards. So, you know, we talked about the question marks at quarterback. Aiden O'Connell comes out, has a great game. Xander Horvath, we talk about, you know, the running game last year. And, of course, you know, you mentioned it yesterday we were talking about it. They didn't even have their top running back, um, and they're out there going for 129 yards. This is a team that was, you know, the worst in the Big Ten in rushing. Um, So they go out and get a big win. I mean, yeah, Iowa isn't ranked, but that's a team that generally is a pretty solid – like, if you can beat Iowa – you know, it's, it's not a team that Purdue they usually were a 10 win team last year. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like Iowa's generally tough, whether they're ranked or not. So it's a good win um, across the board. Then you've got Iowa or uh, you have Indiana with the 36 to 35 upset of number eight, Penn state. The game went into overtime tied at 28 Penn state scores on a Sean Clifford touchdown pass. But then here comes IU. They score on a Michael Penix pass to WAP filler. Um, he gets the uh, touchdown reception and then the controversial two point conversion play, Michael panics reaches for the pylon. Uh, it looks like the back of the football touches out of bounds before the nose of the football cross the plane. And then also the ball starts to come out, which would have been a touchback, no, no score. And well, I don't know if it would have been a touchback on a two point conversion, but it definitely would have been out of bounds. Yeah, that, that would have ended the game. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. That would have, you know, that would have ended the game there. So, uh, nevertheless though, IU does get the win. Um, and they, uh, you know, it was their first win over a top 10 team since 1987. And they're now all the way up to number 17. Uh, and then, uh, Ohio state number five in the country, they win 52 to 17 over Nebraska, number 18, Michigan, maybe, Hey, you know what? Maybe Michigan is starting to, to show some signs of life here with this shortened season. Maybe they'll be able to kind of turn this year into something, uh, you know, that they haven't been able to do the last few years. They win 49, 24 over number 21, Minnesota Rutgers gets their first big 10 victory, uh, since 2017, they beat Michigan state 38 to 27. Those are kind of the, uh, the highlights from the first weekend. So, you know, first weekend reaction, um, I'm very excited to see what Purdue can do, uh, because, you know, now we finally can see what they're capable of. Like I said, there was a lot of question marks going into the season, um, and they answered those question marks in a positive way, I think, in week one. Like I said, Iowa's a tough team to beat, um, you know, year in, year out. You, they did get the win there. They now uh, go ahead and they have Illinois this next week, which you'd like to think uh, is going to be a win. More on that a little bit later. Um, they go against Wisconsin in a couple of weeks, who's now without – it could be potentially without their quarterback, who tested positive for COVID – um, so things are starting to line up for Purdue. I mean, I know it's only one game, but things are starting to line up in a way where you'd like to think that now you're pretty optimistic, even if it's just week one about what this team looks like, uh, going into, uh, to week two. So really excited to see what Purdue can do with this great start to the season. IU, 
took a big step forward in my opinion. Um, yeah, you know, they're, they still have the gauntlet that is, you know, their side of the big 10 with Ohio state and Michigan and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, it's still, you know, good to see them start to kind of find their footing a little bit. And now the big 10, in my opinion, has their fingers crossed that Ohio state can finish at least with one loss as big 10 champs. I think that's a little bit more attainable now that Penn state's lost. I don't think they're as good as we maybe thought they were. So now they're really hoping because now that Penn state has lost, you need, in my opinion, you know, thinking longer term here and, and maybe not so long term because we are getting, you know, believe it or not, we're less than a couple months away from the you know selection show and knowing who the teams in the college football playoff are going to be. So now it's kind of like, well, hopefully Michigan can be something, but should, you know, now that Penn State has lost now, you know, what do we, you know, what do we see here now, you know, from the Big Ten you know, if Ohio State isn't going to be that team, but I think now their path is a little bit easier after what we saw on Saturday. Yeah, I was really excited to see Big Ten football back. I mean, and obviously it started off with a big bang on Friday night with uh, Wisconsin over Illinois and uh, redshirt freshman quarterback Graham Mertz throwing for five touchdowns for the Badgers. I mean, come on, five five touchdown passes from Wisconsin? Yeah. That's how many they usually get in an entire season. But um, looking at the Purdue-Iowa game, that, was a, that wasn't just a big win for Purdue. That was a huge win for Purdue, uh, especially when you look at Purdue's schedule. Purdue has one of the easier schedules this year in the entire Big Ten and actually has um, some aspirations of making it to the Big Ten championship game. Um, after you saw what Michigan was able to do to Minnesota, knowing Minnesota is a younger team this year and they have to figure things out, um, I feel like it does put Purdue in a bit more favorable of a position to try to make a push to the big 10 championship game. Obviously you got to take care of the games that are in front of you, including the upcoming game um, at Illinois. I mean, Illinois completely thumped Purdue last year uh, at Purdue, uh, albeit it was in the middle of a monsoon and that typically throws Purdue for a loop. Um, but this was a huge win for, for the Boilermakers uh, mostly because you're without your star wide receiver or one of your star wide receivers in Rondell Moore. You're without your number one running back in King Daru. You're without your head coach in Jeff Brom, who was out with COVID. You're, you're without your special, your brand new special teams coordinator, Marty Biagi. And you had to, you were down to like a pretty much a, a graduate assistant running the special teams. And then on top of it, you're also introducing in a new defense with a new defensive coordinator after a shortened off season and no spring practice, essentially. So for Purdue to come out and get a win against um, Iowa, it was basically their, this is their first win, uh, season opening win under in the Brom era, whether it be Jeff or Brian coaching um, as the head coach, this was the first season opening win for them. And that's a big deal. So now Purdue has an opportunity to start the season 2-0 and for the first time since 2007, my sophomore year at Purdue. <laughs> I mean, that's a long time ago. That, that was a long time ago. Um but th this was a big step because Iowa was one of those games that was a 50-50 game. It was, uh, you know, it, it was a toss-up if, if Purdue could win. And then as things kept, the dominoes kept falling, you go, no Rondale. Okay, they can overcome that. You know, they have David Bell still. It's okay. No Jeff Brom. Oh, this is getting harder. And then the night before the game, you find out no King Daru. You're like, oh my gosh, there's no way. There is no way 
this is this is going to end well for Purdue. And for them to come out and play the way they did against Iowa, that was great. Um, the IU win over Penn State, uh, you know, hats off to IU, whether that was a win or not, um, that will always be up for debate. I do believe that the ball was out of bounds before it crossed the plane, but because the ruling on the field was that it was, it was good and there wasn't enough to overturn it. You know, you go, you go with that call. I don't want to take anything away from IU. IU has a very good football team, but Penn state is one of those over one of the most overrated teams over the past five years. They have the most losses uh, when they're a top 10 team, they're, them and Auburn have the most losses over the last five years as when they're ranked in the top 10. So it kind of tells you something. And this is something when we did our preview just last week, I said, Hey, you know, Penn state does struggle out of the gate. Look how many times in the past few years, they've almost lost to army. They've almost lost to Appalachian state. So they've almost lost to Kent state. They've almost lost to Pitt. so on and so on and so on. And that's exactly what happens. But IU. This was a big win for your program, a big step forward for you. It really was. But do not be banging your chest calling for a national championship run or even be looking at a, a run at a Big Ten championship game appearance because you still have to go through Michigan and Ohio State. Yes, you beat Penn State, but who does Penn State really have outside of Pat Fryermuth? I mean, yeah, Sean Clifford had a, a really good game, but – they don't really have that. They don't have the weapons. When you look at Ohio State, they're just loaded top to bottom. I mean, it's scary how loaded they are. And you may be on the same level now as com- com- competing in the Big Ten as Penn State. We'll see how you do against Michigan. But no, you are nowhere near the same level as Ohio State. Ohio State doesn't contend for Big Ten championships. Ohio State contends for national championships. And that's plain and simple. So for the people out there on Twitter and everything, they were like, I am so excited for this Purdue versus IU Big Ten championship game. Let's pump the brakes. <laughs> Let's pump the brakes there big time. I honestly, when we were talking yesterday, I said, look, the path for both Purdue and IU to a Big Ten title game is very different. Yes, they're both 1-0, but I still believe Purdue still has the easier path to Lucas oh, yeah. Oil Stadium than IU. And things just got a little bit easier for the Boilermakers with Graham Mertz potentially having COVID and having to be out for 21 days. That includes the game against Purdue. So that, you know, those types of things, that's why I, I believe Purdue has the easier path to a Big Ten championship game. But right now, if everything kind of plays out the way I think it could potentially play out, you could see Purdue finishing third in their division with losses to Wisconsin and Minnesota. I'm going to go ahead and say, right as of right now, those will be losses. Those, that could change. And I think IU finishes third in their division behind Ohio State and Michigan. And that'd be a great, that's great, great improvement for both of these teams. But what's funny is that both of these teams finish up the regular season with each other. And the following week, there is the Big Ten Championship game and then teams two and on down in each division are matched up against each other. So there's a very strong possibility that we could see Purdue versus IU in back-to-back weeks. I think that would be kind of uh, kind of funny and almost kind of boring at the same time. Um, but- well, dude, I would love that if that happened. I think that would be great just because of the fact that, you know, whoever, because this will be the first time ever that like, you know, cause think about it. If you're Purdue, 
and even if you're IU, whoever wins that first game, there'll be a lot of pressure, even though there's nothing really to technically play for. There will be a lot of pressure, like as far as maybe not with the teams themselves, but with the fan bases at least, where like if IU wins the first game, you know, they'll be talking crap all week and then have have to hope that IU backs it up against Purdue the following week. Or if by chance the same team wins both weeks, then that's basically extra bragging rights that you'll have the entire year of like, yeah, you played us twice back to back weeks and you couldn't even, you know, couldn't even beat us. So I, I, I'd like that as much as I want to see Purdue in the big 10 championship and think that like, Hey, who knows one game, if Purdue's undefeated, you know, what could we possibly see, you know, from that, you know, type of game, um, you know, against an Ohio state, um, I almost, you know, it, that would be a nice kind of secondary consolation prize of like, let's get this rivalry like more intense than it already is, basically. Now, my question would then be, you have the bucket game one week. The winner gets to attach a new I or a new P to the bucket in the chain. Do you attach a letter? I think for the you, next week. I think whoever wins, the, it, it's. It's like because it's it's for if, every time Purdue and I you have played each other right. in football, they attach a letter. I mean, obviously, this is a new and, thing and they keep the bucket, happening. right? They keep the bucket. and they get to keep the bucket. Yeah. yeah. So I think it should work. I don't know if you're familiar with these as much, but I used to deal with them all the time when I was doing PA at my high school uh, public address announcing. Um, uh, whenever like you would have a softball or baseball doubleheader, the first game of the, against the doubleheader, if it was against your conference, that would count towards conference play and the second game wouldn't. So I think if that does happen, I think you attach a letter, but whoever won the first game gets to keep the bucket. Cause that was the true, that was the bucket true game. bucket game as okay. opposed to, I, I like that idea rather than being like, well, you get it for a week and hopefully you can keep it because you get to play them again next week. So I like that a whole lot better um, than, or maybe, I mean, I guess you could maybe go off total points, maybe be like whoever, like if, if IU wins, you know, the first time 55 to 35 and then Purdue wins by 21 the following week will be like, well, Purdue technically outscored you by one. So well, you, they get to keep the bucket. Um, but no, I, I like the this idea. Is, I think this is all going to be a mute point anyways. It I will. think Purdue ultimately ends up um, – I'm not going to say ultimately ends up in the Big Ten championship game, but I could see them finishing in second place. Yeah. Um, but I was like, I, I do think I do think they should add a letter regardless now what they do about whoever keeps it. That's another thing. But I do think they should uh, should at least add a letter. And then even if they want to do something special with that letter, be like – this is when we had to play twice because of COVID. Like, okay, that's fine too. Because, because also, we, like we've talked about it before. Like, this is a concept that I kind of hope they keep. So, oh, yeah, me too. so maybe, so this could potentially not be the only scenario where this could happen. Is that just kind of a one-off year? So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see. But yeah, before we get into our uh, IndyCar talk and that kind of thing, let's go ahead and get this quick word from Anchor and Ballot Ready. Well, as you know, B. Scott, this has been kind of a weird year where uh, time hasn't really meant anything. And it's kind of crazy to think that we started off, we had no sports. Then one of the first sports to come back was IndyCar. And we looked at the schedule and we thought like, wow, this is kind of a weird, interesting, kind of cool schedule. You know, the Indy 500 was going to be in, you know, in in August. You had, you know, three races at IMS. You had all this kind of different stuff. 
Um, so we, we were and kind of- We had four races at IMS. True, very true. And so you're kind of wondering how everything was gonna work out. Um, and so finally we have reached the end of the 2020 NTT IndyCar se- season. Uh, and it was, it was a fun season. Um, you know, we look at the final race, the Firestone Grand Prix of St. Petersburg, of course, that was the race that was supposed to kick off the 2020 campaign. Um, before everything, you know, got all crazy in everybody's lives. It will kick um, off the 2021 campaign. So there you go. We'll have basically back-to-back races at St. Pete. Um, double header separated by several months. <laughs> yes. It's the longest gap in a double header of all time. Uh, will Power started on the pole, but he did crash early uh, in turn four to bring out the first caution of the race. Alexander Rossi took the lead from lap, uh, from lap five and did not relinquish it until lap 66. Joseph Newgarden ends up winning the race, uh, but Scott Dixon wins the title. Title uh, Paddle award Scott Dixon, Sebastian Bourdais, and Ryan Hunter Ray rounded out the top five for the race. As far as, as, far as the standings look, uh, it was Scott Dixon, Joseph Newgarden, and Colton Herta, Paddle award, and Will Power. So, you know, the season is over. It was very fun to see Scott Dixon's dominance. It was funny at the beginning of the year, and I won't take, you know, it was kind of flimsy reasoning. So I won't take like 100% credit for saying that like Scott Dixon should be on your IndyCar super team. But I kind of did say this was, I mean, I know this was solely for the Indy 500, but I did say that Scott Dixon should be on your Indy 500 super team. And you know what? Scott Dixon had an amazing year. He won uh, three of the, uh, he won three of the first four races. He ended up winning four on the year. And this is, in my opinion, what, you know, in what IndyCar and auto racing should be is just about consistency. Um, You know, because he had nine top fives and out of 14 races, 13 of them, he finished in the top 10, um so he just had a dominant great year and that's kind of what you want to see like i know that you know that's where like nascar we're not going to get in the nascar indycar debate but that's where kind of nascar has lost me over the years is the fact that um you have um basically you have these two uh you know you have you know the system that's a playoff when really a playoff shouldn't really exist um and then on the other side um um, you know, you, you know, it's about consistency and, you know, and dr- who is the best over the entire year, not necessarily who wins the most races or who wins a one-off race playoff. So I, I think this is exactly what it should be. And I think Dixon uh, just had a phenomenal year. I mean, you know, he, he won four out of 14 races and then the rest, he just, you know, was good, had a good car, stay competitive. Um, so it was fun to see him have, you know, the kind of year that he had where he didn't necessarily need to win a ton of races, but he was dominant at the start and then just kind of coasted from there. So congratulations to him. And then it was also kind of fun to look at some of the like younger guns start to come up as well. Uh, Colton Herta, Paddle Award, Felix Rosenquist, they kind of emerge as young stars, which will be a nice mix going forward with Alexander Rossi, Justin Newgarden, and Scott Dixon. So I think like next year, I think in a normal season and, and not to say that like Scott Dixon can't do the same thing that he did this year, next year. Cause he very much We've seen him do it before. Yeah. Cause he very well could, but I do like the mix of kind of like young stars and things like that, because I think that they, you know, it could turn into that. I think we could see, you know, a co- you know, a couple of these younger guys like Herta or, uh, or, uh, Rosenquist because Rosenquist had a couple of good runs that he did crash out of as well. So like he had a good 
a, you know, a good season and just, you know, had a couple of misfortunes here and there. So I think like over the course of the year, I think these younger guns are going to kind of get in the mix a little bit. And that makes it all fun when there's a, a bunch of guys who can uh, vie for those top positions. So I think it was a good year, a fun year, kind of hard to believe that like, cause it seems like yesterday we were talking about the beginning of IndyCar and, and them coming back. And, and now the season's over B Scott. Yeah. You know, it's sad that the season's over because it, it was a really exciting season um, with just with how they had to reshuffle the schedule um, because of COVID. But man, hats off to, to Scott Dixon. Um, what's scary for the entire series and all the, all the other competitors is the older Scott Dixon gets, the better he seems to get. And like somebody said, you know, Scott Dixon could race for another 10 years physically he you know he's in peak condition but what's the biggest thing for him is he has 20 years of experience 20 years of experience he knows that car inside and out he knows how to it's just i mean you're kind of you almost become speechless with how well he can drive and you know, especially you saw it this past weekend and with all the wrecks on the restarts, you know, people, the tires were slick because they got, they built up marbles, they were cold and they just, people just kept wrecking. Either they, they wrecked on their own or they got soddled, one of the two. Um, and if you don't know what soddled is, it's when you get wrecked by Takuma Sato because of his reckless driving. But <laughs> that's another topic for another day. But Scott Dixon knew how to handle his car in those situations and knew how to be aggressive with his car in those situations as well. I mean, he was really, really, really good on restarts. I mean, so was Joseph Newgarden as well. So at just, I mean, you look at that battle, I feel like this is going to be a battle we're going to see for, a, a, for several years to come. Um, but everybody be like, well, you know, Scott Dixon's 40 and, you know, Joseph Newgarden's not as well. Scott Dixon's going to be racing for a long time. He's going to be racing for a long time still. He's going to be the I mean, Tom Brady of, of IndyCar. He's oh, going to be – Definitely. <laughs> he's going to definitely. be – But it's just a when – you, when you look at a picture of consistency, it's Scott Dixon. He does not make mistakes. Very, I mean, he does, but it's very, very, very rare. And if there is a mistake, it's because of some, some other circumstance out on the track or something mechanical. Even mechanically – uh, his team does not make mistakes. I mean, we may see some mistakes here and there with other Ganassi cars, but you just do not see them out of the nine team. And that is a, a testament to just how in tune this team is, not just with their driver, but as a whole. And it's just unbelievable the kind of dominance that they have. I mean, we all saw how dominant he was at the start of the season you know, he ended up only winning four races. You know, he won three consecutive. You would have thought that he was just going to run away with this thing based off of those three races. But, you know, he kind of did there for a while. He really did. So that's why you also got to take your hat off to Joseph Newgarden, who really trimmed down that lead. Joseph Newgarden did everything he needed to do to win the championship. It's just you can't count on Scott Dixon to make any mistakes. And that's essentially what needed to happen this past Sunday for Joseph Newgarden to win the championship. So I'm super excited about the future because I think this is a rivalry that is definitely brewing. Um, 
And I think these, I mean, obviously Scott Dixon and Joseph Newgarden are the faces of the IndyCar series. I know a lot of people want to say Alexander Rossi is as well. Alexander Rossi was not good this year. I, I think he'll say the same thing. He just was not good. He just was, it just was not his year. I mean, look, he had a really dominant car on Sunday and while leading the race, had one of those situations like everybody else did on restarts where a lot of other people did on restarts. His tires were too cold, got a little messy, and he ended up in the wall. <laughs> it's it, That just kind of was a summation of the year Alexander Rossi has had. Um, I think he's ready to pack up 2020 and move on to 2021 as well. Same thing with most of um, Andretti Autosports. But I'm really excited for the future of IndyCar. Like you said, there's a lot of young stars that are up and coming. I don't know if I really put Felix Rosenquist in that up and coming young star category. Um, yeah, he did get his first, he get, get a win this year. Uh, you know, good there. He is moving on from Ganassi Racing. He is moving over to Aero McLaren Schmidt Peterson. I mean, that's a mouthful. It used to be just <laughs> uh, Schmidt Peterson. Um, but you know, he, he is moving on over there and he is taking over the seat of Oliver Askew, um, who is essentially a free agent now. Um, but so that, that will be interesting to see how he um, can learn from that team. Obviously, Pato Award. I'm really excited to see the growth of him. Um, had he been able to pull off the win, get the win uh, on Sunday, he actually would have uh finished the season in third in the point standings. So that would have put Errol McLaren basically right behind Ganassi and Penske as right up there with them. Essentially, I mean, they finished right behind. I mean, they were essentially right there. But Colton Herta, he's going to – this is a, a young driver that is going to be making a lot of noise, I feel like, in the in the years to come, um, if not just ne- – if not next year. I mean – for a driver that young, it's, it's really tough to overcome what Scott Dixon did this year. Um, you know, there was really, that wasn't many drivers that could have cap or could have beaten Scott Dixon in the championship standings. Um, I think new Joseph Newgarden was one of those drivers that could actually, you know, who, you know, he did, he, he whittled down that lead very well. And I don't think many other drivers, many other young drivers could have done that. Uh, but Colton Herta will be a championship contender in my, my opinion uh, in the next couple seasons, if not next season. So I'm really excited for the future of IndyCar racing. I mean, we got to see another young driver that's going to be new to the series. He raced um, for Penske this past weekend um, at St. Pete. He jumped into the number three car. This is interesting because it's the first time, as long as I can remember, that it has not been Elio Castroneves in the three car. And that's where the depression but, began for B. Scott because someone other than Elio was driving number three. Well, you know, it really wasn't. It wasn't that. I'm, I'm just excited. <laughs> it was just different. Um, especially it was really different during the Harvest GP doubleheader to see Elio in a, a, a car that was not a Penske car right. at that, you know. But I'm really excited to see what um, Scott McLaughlin can do in an Indy car. Um, he raced for Team Penske in the Supercar Series in Australia, and he's a three-time Supercar Series champion. Um, he really is a really good race car driver. Another another Kiwi from from New Zealand. Um, so that that's going to be really exciting to see what, what he can do as he meshes into open wheel racing. 
Um, I think if you had to look at potential rookie of the year, I don't really know how many rookies are, are really truly going to be next year because of no true indie light season. So that will be interesting to look at as well. He could just be the clear cut um, rookie of the year winner because there's not many other rookies out there. It will be an interesting, I want to, I'm really excited to see how he uh, figures things out. It was good. The fact that his first race was in St. Pete, his second race will be in St. Pete. Um, so he'll have a good feeling of the car at that track. Cause that's a very difficult track. It is a very, very difficult track. I mean, he obviously he wrecked out, got into a, a wreck with Renus VK and, um, you know, they, they took each other out there, but I think overall, I'm really excited for next season and looking back on this race this past weekend, what a way to finish the, uh, 2020 season. And it, this race really, uh, summed up 2020 for you pretty well with the numerous wrecks on restarts. Uh, I mean, I feel like almost the second half of the race was run under caution. They ran so many caution laps that the pace car ran out of fuel and to finish off the last caution of the race, jo- Joseph Newgarden was the leader. Joseph Newgarden had to set the pace for the field. So that, that was kind of pretty, that was pretty funny to see and that just basically summed up 2020 for you pretty well yeah and you talk about you know the fact that like rossi had a bad year and stuff i I think the storylines for 2021 are really interesting and really fun if you're an indycar fan because you've got you know what we're going to talk about here in hot and cold uh where just newgarden and and scott dixon kind of have an extra layer to that rivalry a little bit already um we're go uh you also have like if rossi has a bounce back year um you know, you, you know, you you expect that. You have Jimmy Johnson, who's going to be in a car yeah. next year. Big uh, how, you know, you've got, like I said, these young guys coming in. Um, you know, who can be kind of, you know, secondary challengers to those two top on, you know, those two top tier guys, Newgarden and Dixon. So, I mean, the season for 2021 is shaping up to be, I want to say, like one of the best in a long time, but one of the best in terms of like you got a lot of storylines going into the season, so it's really fun if you're an IndyCar fan. And they're going to get to race in the streets of Nashville, Tennessee. And as James Hinchcliffe put it, we're going to race over a bridge. They are. They're going to be racing over a bridge. That's going to be some, like, next-level, like, final destination anxiety right there. Is yeah. Like... <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, hopefully they put, like, some sort of, like, covering, some sort of tube over the top of that bridge. Because I wouldn't like... worry about the top. I'm more worried about if the bridge breaks or something. True. I don't know. It's not I, used I mean, to having that much G-force on it at a, at a time. I, 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 I mean, obviously the bridge isn't going to break. <clears throat> Those cars aren't that heavy. But, yeah, maybe you're right. Something like a netting around yeah. the side something. or something. <clears throat> all, I mean, cause they're going to, it's going to be essentially a straightaway. Yeah. This bridge will essentially be a straightaway. So I guess you don't have to worry about that too much in a straightaway setting, but still. So let's go ahead and get into hot or cold <clears throat> and hot or cold is going to kind of tie in all of what we've talked about tonight, kind of in, <clears throat> excuse me, one uh, kind of nice little bow. Uh, so first of all, for hot and cold, we've got three questions. Um, First question goes back to what we talked about with the Pacers. Uh, the Pacers need to advance to the Eastern Conference semifinals in the first year under Nate Bjorkgren for his first season to be deemed a success. For me, that is a hot take. And the reason is, is because 
you know, and I'm looking at it from more of maybe a fan perspective, which I guess doesn't really matter as much as it does from like the perspective of the brass, because on the one hand, you have your typical first year, you know, you know, you have your first year struggles kind of already in the back of your brain where you're like, where a lot of things, you know, if they, if they go wrong, especially early, you're going to say, Oh, well, it's because his first year as an actual head coach in the NBA, this is going to happen. Growing growing pains, all those cliches. So especially if the Pacers get off to a rough start, like I can see how that'll kind of crop up. And then that'll also kind of feed into where they're at in the playoffs because of a bad start means that they're a six seed or a seven seed instead of a fourth or fifth seed. Well, then there you go. Maybe you're going up against the heat again in the first round. And then maybe it's a tougher matchup. Um, and you, and you end up losing in that first round as a seven seed. Uh, but you know, what I'm looking at it from the perspective of, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty with this next season for the Pacers. You know, what's the future of Oladipo? What's the future of Miles Turner? You know, what's going to happen there? Um, they can't really make a whole lot of free agency moves this year. Um, so like, what is this team going to look like? And so your, your hope was, you know, it's because remember Nate McMillan, the reason why he is no longer there is because, you know, it is, and this was like two weeks after signing an extension, they lost in the first round. They got swept in the first round for the second year in a row. Um, you know, bounced, you know, a couple years ago by the Celtics now by the heat, um, which I, I didn't get, I didn't, forgot to mention it when we talked about Nate McMillan getting fired. I did like in the press release how they were like, he's like eight and whatever in the playoffs. I was like, you didn't have to do my mans like that. You didn't have to bring up his playoff record. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, from the standpoint of like how it's going to be perceived, because guess what, what's going to happen. I can see the Twitter posts already, which like I said, not what's important to a professional franchise all the time, at least, but like, you know how it's going to be where if the Pacers go into a first round matchup, you know, as let's say the fifth or sixth seed and they get swept or lose in five games, people will be like, well, you know, we, we've changed head coaches. We, we had Victor Oladipo for three years and all it got us was three straight first round exits. And I think four straight, if you go back, you know, to well, no, three straight, I think it is, but anyway, however many first round exits it's been, you know, I, I think, it, it and that, that also doesn't really mean that if they lose in the first round, it's a failure. It, it can be in the middle. It can be you know not deemed a success and also not deemed a failure. It can just be like, well, first year struggles, whatever. But I just think it will not be looked at as successful unless they can get out of the first round just because of the history of this team. You moved on from a coach because he couldn't get out of the first round, and then you're right back where you were. It's, it'd be the same. I, I would feel the same way. I mean, I'm sure Sixers fans would feel the same way if they could, if next year, whoever they got, you know, if they go in with Doc Rivers and lose in the first round next year as well. They'll be like, well, what do we do all that for then if we're just going to be in the same place? So that's where I'm looking at it as, you know, like I said, it may not be the most logical thing, but I just look at it from a perspective of a fan where I'm not going to say the guy should be fired after year one if he doesn't make it to the second round. Not what I'm saying. That's what some people on Twitter would say. But uh, but I'm just saying that, you know, I think that, you know, you look at getting rid of a coach like Nate McMillan because of his failures in the playoffs. So if you relive those playoff failures with a different head coach, it's kind of going to it's going to raise questions on whether or not you hired the right person. You know, because I think if it would happen, you know, you're, it's a little easier to shrug off if it had been that splashy higher. And that's where we kind of go back to that. So I don't know how right I am on that, but I just think that from a fan perspective, it really, you know, will, will not be deemed a success unless they make it to the semifinals. 
you know, I, I kind of look at this, I want to say it's hot, but at the same time, it is really kind of lukewarm, mostly because we don't know what other moves the Pacers are going to make this offseason. Um, if they go into next season with this same roster, I feel like you can look at if them not getting swept in the first round as a success. Um, Cause is this team that's built right now, is it a team that could move on to the semifinals? I don't know. Mostly because I really don't know what the rest of the East is going to look like next year. What is Milwaukee going to look like? Obviously Miami is going to probably be even better. How's Philadelphia going to be? What are the nets going to look like with a healthy Durant and Kyrie Irving? Um, I just kind of feel like with not knowing what other moves the Pacers are going to make, you can't really say getting out of the first round is not a success for a first year. I would almost say not getting swept in the first round is a sign of success because of just being swept the past two years in the first round. You just need to show some sort of sign of improvement. Um, And I will deem you that as a successful first year in for, for his coaching tenure at with the Indiana Pacers. But, you know, I, I'm still very excited for this hire. And I think um, with the right other moves with, uh, that the Pacers can make via trade this off season, I think depending on those moves, I, th- I would then say, yes, making it out of the first round would be a, a sign of a successful first year. But as of right now, I would just say not getting swept. Yeah. I mean, I agree. Cause if, if, if it's, if it's a seven game, like hard fought series and they just happen to lose, but also, cause that, cause that can go either way. Cause that could also be, cause I mean, you could even agree that this year, this year's getting swept by the heat looked different than them getting swept by the Celtics two years ago. So right. those are two. Right. Different- yeah. That's so, true. It, you know, and they could also, I mean, you know, just as easily make it to seven games, but look crappy in, you know, like two of those three wins that they got. So, I mean, it, it's kind of a toss up, but I, I, I see what you're saying. And I, I'm more inclined. I, I, I think that's kind of the middle ground. If they make it to the second round versus like going to seven games, like that's kind of in that like middle position. Um, but I'm, you know, so, so I see what you're saying. And I get it. Uh, question number two, uh, Purdue versus Illinois is a bigger trap game than IU versus Rutgers. This is interesting because both IU and Purdue have a sort of trap game set up because Purdue in a couple of weeks will play at Wisconsin. Uh, that will be a big matchup to determine whether or not Purdue can uh, be in contention to possibly uh, play in the Big Ten championship game. Uh, IU in two weeks plays Ohio State. Uh, obviously, you know, I, yeah, it's more of that will be a tough game for them just no matter what, but, uh, this one's, this one's tough for me. I didn't write anything down because I was kind of just going back and forth on this because on the one hand, I think, I think Purdue has more at stake. I think Purdue has more at stake in their game against Wisconsin than IU has against Ohio state. IU thinks they have as much at stake as Purdue does um, you know, in that third week of the season, but they really don't like, I, I really don't understand. And I hope that this isn't a sign of like how rankings are going to be done the rest of the year. I kind of understand it. I kind of understand it, but also kind of scares me. Like I understand why, like in a way, why IU would be, would now go from being unranked to ranked after being, after beating a top 10 team in Penn state, 
Do I agree that they should be number 17? No, I think they should be in the twenties. Um, but that kind of worries me a little bit, but I think, I think, <laughs> I think IU because, because you look at these two games, just kind of in a vacuum Purdue versus Illinois, like this Purdue should have an easier time with Illinois theoretically than IU and Rutgers. Cause IU and Rutgers are actually both coming off of big wins for their program. Like Rutgers finally getting over the hump and winning a big 10 game for the first time in three years. And then you have IU beating a big 10 for the first beating a uh, top 10 team for the first time in 13 years um, or, or 23 years, however many years math, math is hard. Um, but uh state education yeah it's that ball state oh it's 33 years dang it i messed it up twice um but anyway i was born in 87 so yes i'll be 33 this year <laughs> b scott's old focus on that not me screwing up math all right so but yeah so i mean i think i think it's a honestly i think i want to lean more towards purdue because they have more it's more actually at stake they, you know, and will be playing a lesser opponent in Illinois. This will be a game where they will, that is your classic trap game of, hey, next week's really big. They're like, but this week shouldn't, we can, we can sleepwalk through this week and we'll be fine. I'm not, B Scott, before you say anything, I know, I don't think Jeff Brom will let it be that way, but that's just what I, this is an easy, like if you're looking at trap games, this is an easy thing for them. I think for no, I think for IU, they now know that Rutgers is not a pushover in the Big Ten anymore, or at least has won a game and is, is at least going to be a more viable opponent. And, you know, I, I just think the one thing that makes me want to lean a little bit over to the IU side is the fact that they're actually ranked, and now they have kind of that reason to puff out their chests and take Rutgers. We don't have to worry about Rutgers. We're ranked now. Like, that's what I think <laughs> IU might be thinking. But I'm going to lean a little bit more towards Purdue just because they have more actually at stake. I think IU kind of knows, like, hey, even if, you know, I think IU thinks that they're like, okay, you know what? The big step is past us, but we still have, you know, two very tough, at least two very tough matchups in Michigan and Ohio State. Like, I think Purdue's game against Wisconsin – could quite possibly be for the Big Ten championship game, who represents that side of the Big Ten. Whereas, you know, IU versus Ohio State, there's still a lot of football to be played on that side of the conference. So I'm going to lean more towards uh, Purdue, Illinois. So I will say it's a hot take. I'm actually going to say this is a cold take. Um, very slightly. Not very slightly, but, you know, most of the time I would say this is a hot take because this game of this – Purdue versus Illinois game is a type of game that Purdue would lose under Jeff Brom. Um, and a matter of fact, they did <laughs> last year. And that is why I believe this is a cold take because of how bad Purdue got beat by Illinois last year. Purdue is going to go in there with a chip on their shoulder against Illinois with something. They're going to have something to prove against Illinois. I don't, I mean, yeah, there's a chance they'll be looking ahead to Wisconsin, but honestly, because of how bad they got embarrassed by Illinois last year, I just don't see that happening. I see them focused on Illinois. I do see IU overlooking Rutgers because IU beat Rutgers last year pretty badly. IU is now ranked. IU did just beat a top 10 team. And now they're looking ahead to saying, I, Ohio State, we're coming for you. This is our time. We're coming for you. And Rutgers saying, 
hey, we're back. You know, we, we just won. A, we're an a, FBS a school again. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we, we're in the win column. Uh, don't sleep on us. And Rutgers is a team that, te- that, that, that other teams typically do sleep on. I mean, look, Jeff Brom's first year, they just came, they came off of a big win the week before. I believe it was against Nebraska or Minnesota. I, can't, I don't remember who it was, but Purdue was doing pretty well. Went into Rutgers, went into uh, Piscataway, New Jersey, and lost to Rutgers. I believe that was Rutgers' last Big Ten win. <laughs> to be honest, I think their last Big Ten win prior to Michigan State was against Purdue. Um, but th- this, this has the potential for IU more so to sleep on Rutgers looking ahead to Ohio state, um, because of all this, st- all the reasons you mentioned, I-, I just don't see Purdue overlooking Illinois, looking ahead to Wisconsin based off of what Illinois did to Purdue last year. Purdue's going to have a chip on their shoulder and have something to prove against the Illini. So that's why I'm going, this is a cold take. Final question, um, and it's a very interesting one. Scott, this was a doozy. Scott Dixon, this is courtesy of B. Scott. B. Scott was came in clutch for me, helped me out with the questions uh, last night, and I was like, you know what? This one is a very good one. It's a tough one. Scott Dixon and Joseph Newgarden will both, both, that's the key here, break A.J. Foyt's record of seven championships, which means both of them are destined to win eight titles uh, and for me, this is a cold take because I don't think both of them will. I think Scott Dixon, see, you know, you know, you know, the thought I was having, you know, here as we were kind of going through these hot and cold questions, you know, as I was like looking ahead to, you know, for the next question, I was like, you know what? It's kind of in a way, I mean, because remember, Tiger Woods was right there, you know, close to the record for most majors, and then all the stuff that happened with Tiger Woods. Um, which I don't see happening to Scott Dixon. <laughs> so I think um, I think you don't see, I don't yeah you're right I don't see Emma throwing a, a golf cart <laughs> yeah I don't think windshield. I think it's a little I don't bit see of a different that at case. All. <laughs> so and, and the fact that like and I agree with you the fact that you said that like hey Scott Dixon could be racing for a, a long time still even though he is you know creeping up there in age um, and I mean not a long long time but you know into it at least know, another five years yeah into his forties five years so I have you know. I have more faith in Scott Dixon winning two than I have in Joseph Newgarden winning what six, he'd need six to get to eight Um, because of what we talked about earlier, because I mean, I don't know. You, you could tell me if this logic tracks because I think Scott Dixon, we talked about kind of the younger crop of play of, uh, of drivers starting to kind of form up against Joseph Newgarden will have to race against them for longer than Scott Dixon will have. I think I have more faith that Scott Scott Dixon can win two out of the next five to seven than I have with Joseph Newgarden having to win six out of the next like fifteen to twenty. If that makes yeah, sense, I want I want to argue this because he's got he's I I understand that Joseph Newgarden has a longer time to get there, but I think that those challengers to Newgarden will be there the entire time. Dixon, I think has proven he can do it more often against, you know, all types of, I mean, cause Scott, Scott Dixon was doing this, you know, with kind of the old batch of superstars that we had when he was kind of the young, the young gun. I think Scott Dixon is more proven. I have more faith that he can win too. Not to say that jo- Joseph Newgarden isn't good. It's just saying that I don't know that he will win 
basically what a fourth of the you know all like of his next like 20 years in the sport i don't know that he'll win a championship a fourth of the time you know i'm gonna this was a tough one this one is a very tough one but i i'm gonna go with a hot take mostly because when you look at scott dixon's championships he's won them here as the older he's gotten yeah and yeah it's, it's i think scott dixon wins two more i mean Prove me wrong. Scott Dixon wins two more championships. Change my mind, essentially. He's not showing any signs of slowing down. He's very consistent. And that's what it that's key to winning an IndyCar championship is winning the Astro Cup. You just have to be consistent. Race, every race, just be consistent. And we're starting to see that from Joseph Newgarden as well. He is just consistent. Even if he does not have the best car out there on the track and he's not contending for the win he's up there in the top 10 up there in the top five he's not having dnfs he's not wrecking the car it's very consistent he makes aggressive moves when he needs to make aggressive moves this is very reminiscent of scott dixon in his racing style as he's gotten older as well so and yes scott dixon had when he was younger he was contending against guys like dario franchiti uh you know Dan Weldon, I mean, so on and so on and so on. There was a lot of drivers he was contending against as well. Um, I don't think, you know, I, I feel like we could be looking at like a Colton Herta later on at, in Joseph Newgarden, like we're looking at Joseph Newgarden and Scott Dixon, maybe not on the same level, but um, you just never know. I wouldn't have thought Joseph Newgarden would be up here contending for three championships in four years um, all that long ago. I thought he, you know, maybe contending for a championship here or there, but essentially the past four years, I want to say the past four champions have been Joseph Newgarden or Scott Dixon. So real. I think it is very realistic to think that um, Joseph Newgarden could go on a run or could, you know, have the type of success throughout his career that we are seeing from Scott Dixon. And so I'm not I, I and gonna I'm, say it is a hot take. And also, I'm also saying this because, I mean, yes, AJ Foyt ran forever, it felt like. Um, but I, I don't know. I just feel like, you know, both of these guys have some of the best equipment underneath them True. every season. Penske power, Ganassi power, it's it is what it is. And I don't see, I mean, I do see people com coming up and contending for other championships and I don't see them being, it just being Joseph Newgarden and Scott Dixon year in and year out every year. I'm not going to say that. I do think, you know, you are going to see other drivers get in there and win championships as well. Colton Herta, potentially Pato Award, those types of drivers. But I really do believe Joseph Newgarden is setting himself up to be the next Scott Dixon-like driver for the IndyCar series as Scott Dixon's career winds down, whenever that may be. But a lot of the things that we're seeing out of Joseph Newgarden now are the things that we see out of Scott Dixon as well. And th that is what it, that, that's championship caliber driving. Um, so I, I, I believe it is possible. I think it's more possible than not. Yeah. I mean, because the, because the question you basically have to ask yourself, because AJ Foy, I mean, obviously, 
you know, yes, AJ Foyt raced a long time, but when is the last time he raced? It's been a long time. And we, how many other drivers have we had, you know, that, I mean, maybe not we're on the same level of Scott Dixon, but that's kind of what I'm saying is that like, you know, you're, you're asking if, do we have one once in a generation race car driver in this league, in the league right now, or do we have, you know, two, you know, twice, I guess it will be twice in a generation IndyCar drivers in the league right now. So, um, you know, and I think it's, it's, I think Scott Dixon will definitely get there. It's just whether or not Joseph Newgarden can, because again, I mean, it's tough. I mean, not to say that it will be easy for Dixon and, and not for new or and not for Newgarden, but like, I mean, you know, not to hit close to home here, uh, B Scott, but like we thought Elio would win, would have had his fourth IndyCar or for his fourth uh, Indy 500 by now. I know it's a race, not a whole season. A lot of things can happen, but you know, you, you can have really, you know, fast starts and then kind of, you know, fizzle off as the competition gets greater. And I think that's more of what New Garden's going to face than what Dixon's going to face. I think Dixon has proven that he can go against the old crop when he was younger and the new crop when he was older. Um, so well, I Joseph think Newgarden's proven that too. He's going against the older True. crop when he's younger and he's going to eventually have to face this younger crop as he gets older. True. Uh, you know, I, I just, I just feel like, I mean, obviously the, honestly, let's, let's be honest, the likelihood of this happening I, is pretty slim, but I do feel like there is a chance that you could see that. I, I just, when I look at Joseph Newgarden and how he races he, every time he's in the car, it doesn't matter. He could say he could have the worst car in it. You know, he doesn't have a great car, but he's just consistent. He makes the moves at the right time. He's a smart race car driver. The only thing I think that could really derail him from this, from, from capturing or, you know, surpassing this, the seven mark is another series that comes calling. And because he's so young, and he wants to move on and have a different challenge. You know, Scott Dixon, I don't, that never, that, there was never that kind of allure for him. He never, he didn't have wandering eyes. I don't know. I can't, I don't know about Joseph Newgarden. I can't say. Um, I mean, he loves IndyCar. You can, you just can see it in the way he talks about the racing series and in any interviews that he does, he just loves it. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, Roger Penske has an opening in NAS. I mean, Roger Penske is also one that is known to say, Hey, I want to move you from this series to this series. Cause I feel like you could be really good in this series for us. He is one that shuffles drivers around. That's ex- essentially what he did with Elio. He moved him from IndyCar over to IMSA and to help him kick off his, uh, IMSA series. But I mean, would it, would it, would I don't think he would because Elio wasn't like contending for championships. Like that was in the twilight of Elio's career as opposed to Elio's prime. So like, and here's the thing. Cause for one, I mean, I don't know for a fact that like the money is still better in NASCAR than it is in IndyCar. I'd imagine it still is, but like the allure of going to NASCAR from IndyCar, in my opinion, isn't as great when, when NASCAR when Tony Stewart moved from IndyCar to NASCAR, that was when NASCAR was at its like height of popularity. Um, you know, and since then we've seen other drivers. Tony Stewart was more of a a NASCAR build anyways, in my opinion. Yeah. And, And you've seen it where, you know, other drivers have kind of, you know, gone over there and then fallen flat. I mean, not even talking about Danica here. I mean, what about Sam Hornish, Dario Franchitti? I mean, we've seen it happen 
you know, uh, Juan Pablo Montoya did it pretty well, but Juan Pablo Montoya has had success at any series. Yeah, and Juan Pablo is more of a Tony Stewart type where you put him in anything, you know, a Jeff Gordon type where you can put him in anything and he'll find success somewhere. See, um, I don't think, I don't think NASCAR would come knocking essentially for Joseph Newgarden. It right. But I, because, I don't think um, though, he is, I, the Ameri- he is an American, young American driver. However, there are plenty of those in NASCAR where I feel like, the money could come calling on Joseph Newgarden is formula one. Hey, and who's to say though, who's to say that Pinsky doesn't say, Hey, Joseph, we want you to go, uh, you know, Ryan, you know, Ryan new Wait, Does Ryan Newman even still drive for Pinsky? No, he no. doesn't now. Okay. Well, I, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm the one now back in 2007. Um, but, uh, you know, let's say, you know, whoever's driving for Penske right now in NASCAR, that's how out of touch I am with them. Let's Brad say Kozlowski, Joey uh, Logano. Yeah, there we go. Let's say Brad Kozlowski, they're going to, they're, you know, he decides to retire early and, uh, then uh, he's like, you know what? We're going to move Joseph Newgarden into Brad Keselowski's car. Joseph Newgarden could say no. You know what? Scott Dixon just retired from Chip Ganassi. I'm going to go drive for Chip Ganassi now. And who knows? Maybe that's how he gets it done. Well, if we're talking about if we're talking about hypothetical fictional scenarios, I'm not saying he's going to win eight championships with Penske. That's what, I'm, I, that's what I, I'm saying. Who knows? You know, we're talking about hypothetical fictional scenarios. I mean, right. There's and one right there. I, I mean, the, I, the, I, what I'm saying is the only thing that could prevent him from going after that is I, honestly, I think the only series that could come calling that would have any kind of draw is Formula One, just yeah. because the money in Formula One is outrageous. Right. I mean, it puts IndyCar and NASCAR both to shame. However, you also have to have that kind of money to even break into Formula One <laughs> as well. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, it's always something that's to be worried about now that Formula One has a foot in the IndyCar series with McLaren. And Zach Brown, the, the president of McLaren, you know, the whatever he's called, I don't know. They have some different name for it over there. But with him poking around the racetracks now for IndyCar and all of a sudden there's an opening in McLaren and formula one and they need a young talented driver, you know, that's the only thing. And I'm, is this a possibility? I don't know. There's nothing out there saying that this is a rumor or anything. This is just me thinking, what are the possibilities that could potentially derail Joseph Newgarden from winning seven or more championships or being a consistent championship contender in IndyCar. I mean, as I think as long as he's an IndyCar and as long as he's at Penske or, you know, he has that top power underneath him. I mean, heck, it doesn't have to be top power. We saw how well he raced even for Ed Carpenter racing uh, when he, he was younger. So that's the only thing that concerns me is that another series could come calling and he go, you know, I've got three or four championships here in IndyCar. You know, maybe have an Indy 500 win under his belt. There's not much more I can accomplish here. Let me move on and see what else I can do in the racing world. And I'm not saying that's, that's going to happen. I'm just saying these are hypotheticals that could show up. Well, that will do it for this week's edition of the Crash Course Podcast. Thank you guys all for hanging out. 
Remember, you can follow us at Crash Course FM on Twitter, Crash Course Podcast on YouTube and Facebook. Remember, you can listen every week on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever podcasts can be heard, you can hear the Crash Course Podcast. Next week, the Major League Baseball season will be over, so we will be doing some recaps on that and talking some baseball. But until then, have a good week, everybody.